KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Monday was the day for San Diego County businesses, from restaurants and gyms to movie theaters and museums to reopen at a limited capacity. Salons can reopen fully. The last time businesses reopened in June, there was a surge of coronavirus cases. That triggered indoor closures. The rise in cases has been curbed, and now we can once again eat, watch movies, and look at museum displays and work out inside. But Supervisor Greg Cox is quick to remind everyone that caution is still needed. We can support local businesses and do so safely by wearing a face covering, by keeping our distance, and practicing good hygiene. Let's not blow this opportunity. Some scientists think even this reopening is too early. We'll have more on that in a bit. But in the meantime, many business owners say it's not enough. Thomas Hall manages the Grass Skirt restaurant and says he wants to put employees back to work. When it comes to their mental health, it concerns me because they're at home all day, not doing things that they love, which is serving people. They're making their money. Walmart, Target, all these giant industries but I can't open my restaurant and provide a living for my staff that need me. This time, most establishments are limited to 25% capacity indoors, gyms are even less limited to 10%, and bars that don't serve food can't open at all until San Diego meets more stringent public health criteria for two weeks, plus at least one more week for a mandatory waiting period. Larger events like concerts still don't have any guidance from the state on reopening. San Diego City officials have picked a development team to revamp the Pechanga Arena property in the Midway District. Mayor Kevin Faulkner announced Saturday the city would partner with Brookfield Properties and ASM Global to redevelop 48 acres in the district that include the arena and its surroundings. The developers want to build parkland, housing, retail, and office space, but that vision hinges on how the city votes on Measure E, which would lift the 30-foot height limit in Midway. It's Tuesday, September 1st, and you're listening to San Diego News Matters from KPBS News. It's a daily morning news podcast powered by all of the reporters, editors, and producers in the KPBS newsroom. I'm Annika Colbert. Stay with me for more of the local news you need to start your day. Some San Diego researchers are urging the county to put the reopening of more businesses on hold until October 1st. KPBS's Eric Anderson reports. Nearly a dozen University of California San Diego doctors and scientists sent a letter to county supervisors. They say the county is on the right track and falling rates of infection show that, but they worry opening schools and a host of businesses before Labor Day will lead to a resurgence in the number of COVID-19 infections and deaths. 
The researchers include Robert Shuley, a distinguished professor of medicine, Kim Prather, a distinguished professor of atmospheric chemistry, and Kit Pagliano, dean of the School of Biological Sciences. They say COVID-19 is an airborne infection, and many historically underprivileged areas of the county have infection rates that are too high to qualify for reopening. They want the county to impose strict mask enforcement over the holiday weekend. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. A San Diego relief fund supporting Black-owned businesses affected by the COVID-19 pandemic has topped more than $1 million in fundraising efforts. The Central San Diego Black Chamber of Commerce says it's helped nearly 200 recipients out of more than 1,000 applicants. Businesses across the county have gotten grants ranging from $1,000 to $5,000. A.J. Williams got one of those grants. He owns Hammond's Gourmet Ice Cream and says every dollar helps helps keep his stores afloat. You know, you're going to be dealing with a lot of different issues, capital shortages because the business sort of sales are not as what you expected them to be or you planned for them to be or what they were in the past. So uh, you need all the help you can get uh, across the board. City Council member Monica Montgomery says the relief fund is just the beginning of the aid needed for Black-owned businesses. This Black Business Relief Fund is an answer to the pain of the people. It is a start, but we still have a lot of work to do. Businesses can apply for a grant on the Central San Diego Black Chamber of Commerce website. Monday marked the start of a new school year at the San Diego Unified School District, but the pandemic has robbed students of the excitement that usually accompanies the first day of school. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong has our story. Students at Sarah High School are taking three classes this semester, half the usual number, but each class will cover a year's worth of material. Kate Chasen is a junior at Sarah High. She said the first day went smoothly, but she's worried about keeping up with her AP classes. So I'm taking AP English Latin Composition, which is already a very rough course to do for the entire year. I know my sister took it, a bunch of my friends took it, and they had a hard time getting through it even in a full year. And so I'm a little nervous. San Diego Unified has not yet set a date for when it would reopen physical schools. The district did announce last week that up to 12,000 students with special needs would come back for in-person learning as soon as late September. Joe Hong, KPBS News. One-fifth of San Diego students returning to virtual schools this month are English language learners. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler tells us how teachers are bridging the digital divide to reach these students for whom English is a second language. Sylvia Miranda is a first-grade teacher at Nikoloff Elementary School, which is part of the South Bay Union School District. This district serves 7,000 students. Just over half of them are English language learners, meaning they don't speak English at home. So when the pandemic hit in March, during a crucial stage of development, these students' language acquisition dropped off. It was a huge challenge. First of all, uh, many of them didn't, don't have internet access. They're just, you know, low income, so internet is too expensive for many of them. Miranda handed out some hotspots for her students, but gone were the one-on-one -on -one conversations she had with them to develop their language skills. Miranda scrambled to shift online while her students and their parents grappled with the immediate shift to virtual learning. I don't think I can even count the number of hours that I had to spend just to figure out the new platform. 
on how to do lessons online, how to download uh, videos. It was a lot of work just to get things going. If it was challenging for me, imagine how challenging it was for my parents. After a summer of preparation, Miranda's virtual class opened on Monday. All students in the district have been given a laptop and internet access, but many of them will be without parental assistance while in class. They, they cannot afford just to stay home like we do. They have to go and work. So our students are kind of um, sometimes on their own with um, older siblings. Miranda explains there will be virtual breakout groups for more personal instruction, along with the use of prepared videos to demonstrate concepts and individual work. But it's going to be tricky for teachers to reach these youngest students. For these language learners, any instruction time lost could reverberate with them for years. Magali Lavendez is a professor of English learner research at Loyola Marymount University. She runs a program that creates curriculums to promote equity for English language learners. She's worried about how a general drop in instruction time, which will vary district by district, will impact English language learners. That the learning loss that we fear is going to be true for all children because of the pandemic is then going to be inequitably magnified for English learners students. And she says virtual classrooms at the end of the day are still no substitute for in-person language instruction. Part of the exacerbation is that people are even with the best of internet technology, are still disconnected from each other. Still, teachers and students in areas hardest hit by the pandemic, especially Latino communities, have found ways to deepen their connections. It really has emphasized what the depth and breadth of the needs of families are. While teachers are trying to be there for their students emotionally during this time, it's no replacement for the social cues that a teacher can pick up on for English language learners in the classroom. So for our youngest kids who are English learners, just imagine that the conundrum here of understanding what the teacher is trying to explain to you She's basically right in front of you in only a box. Jorge Cuevas Antion is San Diego County's coordinator for multilingual education across multiple school districts. Even as the county has provided ready-made curriculums, support, and specific standards to teachers, he's not downplaying the challenges this year poses for teachers and their dual-language students, especially as conversations between students play such a large role in language acquisition. You can imagine that for our, our really young kids at TK, uh, pre-K, kinder, it, it's really tough um, to expect the kids to be managing conversations and to easily gather all their attention back up. And everything's made all the more difficult as teachers try to battle through barriers of language, technology, and just general bureaucracy. Over the weekend, with classes set to start in just a few hours, parents and teachers in the South Bay posted in Facebook groups about the lack of class assignments, login credentials, and Zoom links. All setting up a first week of school like no other, especially for students who need the attention the most. That was KPBS's Max Revlin Nadler. Coming up on San Diego News Matters, San Diego police are now pretty quickly releasing videos when officers shoot someone, but not all of the raw footage. What it says is release video essentially to, to the public so that the public understands what occurred. It doesn't say release of all video. We'll take a look at how police are following a new state law. That's up next after this break. Police departments now have to release videos within 45 days, 
Every time an officer fires their weapon or uses force that causes great bodily injury. But the law doesn't say all of the video. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser has found this has created an opportunity for a private contractor to produce edited video packages, and it's raised questions from activists and right-to-know advocates. And a warning, this story contains graphic audio. It had been less than a month since the nation erupted in protest following the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer when, on June 27th, San Diego officers shot a man in downtown. Almost immediately, the news was up on social media, and protesters gathered at the scene and called for the release of the officer's body camera and other video of the shooting. Until last year, such calls would often fall on deaf ears. Police agencies weren't required to release video in a specific time frame, so in many cases, they would keep it secret indefinitely. But a new state law, AB 748, requires release of these videos within 45 days. In this case, the San Diego Police Department released a video within 24 hours. Stop! But the video didn't include all the raw footage of the shooting. Instead, the department paid a private contractor $5,000 to produce a package chronicling the event. The complete digital evidence of the shooting, which could include body camera footage, surveillance video from nearby stores, video from smart streetlight cameras, and witness cell phone video, hasn't been released yet and likely won't be for at least a year or more when the full investigation into the shooting is complete. This approach does not violate the law, says police spokesman Lieutenant Sean Takeuchi. What it says is release video essentially to, to the public so that the public understands what occurred. It doesn't say release of all video. It doesn't say release of all raw images. It's essentially just enough information to the public so that public understands what occurred. But some open record advocates and activists like Tasha Williamson aren't satisfied. If we're going to talk about transparency, I call Chief Nislight the chief of transparency because he's not, right? So for me, if he's the chief of transparency, then release all the video. Takeuchi disputed any suggestion that the department would produce misleading videos. The video isn't, isn't about releasing what's the best. The video, releasing the video is about what happened. It was produced by Vacaville-based Critical Incident Video. Former TV news journalist Laura Cole started the company last year and now has contracts with about 100 police agencies statewide. We're going to review the body cam footage. We're going to ask for the 911 call if there was one. We're going to ask for witness statements. Uh, we're going to ask for any cell phone footage that might be taken by a bystander. We're going to ask for surveillance video, anything that would help bring context to the situation. She then creates productions that usually last for about 10 minutes. San Diego's videos often start with a message from Police Chief David Nislate describing the context of the shooting. He delayed, moved slowly, and then an officer saw him reach for a gun. The video uses maps, audio from 911 calls, and on-screen text to give more information before showing footage of the actual shooting. Cole says she produces objective accounts of the incidents, but she acknowledges that she's being paid by the departments and they have final say over the version that is released to the public. Obviously, at the end of the day, this is their video, so they could take something out or add something in that they wanted. 
Cole says San Diego police and other departments will tell her what footage they want redacted before she starts editing, but she's never had a department order changes to a video after it's been produced. And she says she would drop a department as a client if she felt it was operating in bad faith. Somebody came to us and said, we want you to spin this video or make us look good. I wouldn't take on that project because that is not going to build community trust. Cole says it's important to her that the videos she produces tell the full story. She calls the people who work for her transparency engagement advisors. They are being hired and paid, right, by the police department. Bailing Shaw is the dean of the College of Communications at California State University, Fullerton. She says that doesn't make the company a truly objective outside source. Still, she says producing a video can be helpful. By framing the information, it's potentially helpful because all of us are so inundated on a daily basis with information that having that information framed for us and contextualized for us is helpful to our understanding. However, because in some communities there has been a history of mistrust between community members and law enforcement, this is where you run into a challenge if there is a perception that somehow information may be framed in a way that is not supportive of people being able to fully and accurately draw their own conclusions. The critical incident videos are also produced in a way to tell a story from the police department's point of view, says Jeremy Rue. He's the associate dean at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. They've set up this, you know, this narrative arc, if you will, of the piece. Uh, one of the things that they do, and this is a very popular um, technique in fiction storytelling, uh, is to set up the scene initially to preface your video or your content with some context. So by contextualizing the video before you even see it, You've already been equipped with certain knowledge, and that's what you see in movies. That's what you see in commercials. That's what you see in all kinds of creative media. You know, the opening narration that sorts of sets up the scene. Rue also noted that the San Diego Police Department is making redactions in some videos, which is an editorial choice. For example, when officers shot Toby Diller on January 24th in the Oak Park neighborhood after a struggle where Diller reached for an officer's gun. The audio is redacted immediately after the officer shoots. Text in the video says that portion is redacted, quote, because of graphic audio that was a result of the gunshot wound to Mr. Diller. We consider that audio disturbing and its release in this form would be disrespectful and gratuitous. If I had more trust in the police, you know, and I, and I felt that uh, they were entities that are more transparent and held themselves accountable and um, and had a degree of humility about the way they go about doing things, then I might see that and might agree, okay, that's, um, I appreciate that they didn't, uh, you know, uh, put out audio of, of someone dying in agony uh, and, and I might accept that. Um, but I think in this age, just seeing all of the instances of where, um, of, of, of police malfeasance and, and, and unjustified shootings, it, um, that redaction comes across with a lot of skepticism. San Diego police have released all the videos of their officers shooting people in the past year, except one. 
That should show an officer shooting a woman in her apartment in the East Village on May 23rd. Tomorrow, we'll explore the reasons why it hasn't been released. That was KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. And tomorrow, we'll have part two of her series on police videos. Be sure to tune in to San Diego News Matters, where you can find the longer, fuller version of Claire's work. That's it for the podcast today. Thanks for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com.